0: Turn with me in your Bibles to that fascinating book of prophecy, Revelation chapter 2, where we'll pick up at verse 18 with a fourth letter to the church of Thyatira. So, as you get to Revelation chapter 2, we'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we always pray that you'd prepare our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit that you'd open our hearts and our spiritual understanding, that you'd give us insight to these truths which are spiritually discerned. We need your spirit to help us with this spiritual truth. So we thank you. We want to understand it so that we can put it into practice, not only know it, but live it so we can be blessed and be a blessing to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let me start the teaching this morning with a quick church history and geography lesson complete with maps and a laser pointer. (laughs) All right. Now, here the stars represent the seven churches being addressed in chapters two and chapters three of the book of Revelation. And so and and they're sort of in order of how the letter would be communicated to them. These who local congregations, this is this whole land mass is modern day Turkey. Uh, these seven, it started with Ephesus, so Patmos is here where the letter is originating. And so John is going to send that letter to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and it will probably make its way back to Ephesus. And and so these, as I have said, are are located, they they are local congregations there in modern-day Turkey. Now, the second slide, to, to just give you more of a region here, the gospel starts here in Israel, Jerusalem. And the Bible says that the Lord, before he left, he said, you'll be my witnesses here. And then in Judea, a little bit larger area. And then he says Samaria, even a larger area. And then he says to the rest of the world. The gospel in the 60 years from Jesus' death and resurrection, and when he gave the Great Commission, the gospel goes in this direction. It goes northwest. This is where first century Christianity first takes place. Of course, it does go in other places, but the entire book of Acts concentrates on the establishing of the gospel in this area. This is where the, the three missionary journeys, so from Acts chapter 12 to Acts chapter 19, missionary journey 1, 2, and 3, Every single time, missionary journey number one in the book of Acts, chapter 12 and 13, Paul goes from Antioch to Cyprus, hits land around Perga, goes up to Lystra, gets stoned and left for dead, and then he turns around and goes back. (laughs) All right? Second missionary journey, they say in Acts 14 and 15. Let's go back and check on the churches we planted. So they go back by land. They go straight up here. Second missionary journey, Acts 16. They get a vision to go across to Europe for the very first time. And they go to Philippi. And then they come down. Where are we? Philippi. They cross here with the gospel. Now this is Europe. This is all modern day Greece now. All right. So the gospel comes down here all the way, goes to Corinth, He goes back here and back to the sending church, the missionary church. The third missionary journey, much the same way, strengthening the churches. They go again the same route like this. From that effort in the 60 years from Jesus' death and resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit, from those years, these seven churches back to those stars there. Those seven churches have come. That's how they got there. That's who planted them. The gospel went in that direction. Interestingly, and I throw this in for free, it's in keeping with the prophetic word through Noah that Japheth would be blessed and his tent enlarged. So it makes very much good sense. Japheth is the father of the Europeans. He's the progenitor of the Europeans among other people groups. But that the gospel goes first to Japheth is just interesting. It's just keeping in sync with the entire prophetic word given to us in the scriptures. And so you have these seven churches. and, And the Lord calls them the seven because they are the perfect picture of the hundreds of churches that existed at the time, of the good and the bad, the strengths and the weaknesses, as we've been saying every week, they represent every church that ever has been or will be from the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came in the birth of the church, Acts chapter 2, until the rapture of the church when the Lord comes for the church and takes us away. We are now following an outline... For us, you can put the outline up that the book of Revelation gives us for structure, and we have been seeing this every week just to keep you, and especially for those of you who are don't have the uh, uh, don't have what's the word? You don't have the uh, experience of having been here uh, week by week. And so, uh, Revelation chapter one verse nineteen gives us the outline for the whole book. The Lord gives John this tremendous vision of Himself. And we see then the book of Revelation, the prophecy, is Christ revealing Christ. This is not a book about the Antichrist, the Mark of the Beast, or uh, the false prophet, or Armageddon, for that matter. This is a book about the Lord God Almighty, the author of life, the beginning and the end. And so he said, write what you have just seen. Chapter 1, check. Then he says, now write what is now, which is the church the church age, before he gives uh, the, the advanced history of the entire end of the world and the second coming of Christ and the judgments that will pummel this Christ-rejecting world, before he gets to that, he says, well, let's talk to the church. Because what good is it to know how the world ends if you can't walk right with your Lord? And so the Lord of the church says, I'm going to, in chapters 2 and chapters 3, select the complete picture of the church, and speak to her. And so we find ourselves somewhere in and out of these descriptions in chapters 2 and 3. Depending on our obedience or our repentance, we are flowing in and out, and I've already seen me, I've seen the the rock in these descriptions. And so after the church is removed when, in an event that we call the rapture, then he says, After these things, after he just talked to seven churches, after these things, and in the Greek, are done with, are over, when the church is over and removed, rescued, and saved, then chapters 4 through 22 show the church in heaven, shows the judgments of Christ falling and his second coming uh, making the sky light up as lightning from east to west and so we find ourselves now in the letters one by one and we're on letter four if you're just joining us uh, today that should bring you up to speed all right the fourth letter of the lord to his local congregation and to the church universal us revelation chapter 2 starting in verse 18 Now, to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you're doing now more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you, You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until, or unless, rather, they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Children there means followers. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, To you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only this, hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. He's quoting Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 there. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. We're going to take a look at this longest letter of the seven sent to the smallest city of the seven. Now, uh, it's, these letters have a very uh, comfortable outline to follow. They, have, they, ha- they talk about a city and a greeting from the Lord. They have a commendation, in other words, what they're doing right. They then have concerns or correction, what they need to fix because they're doing something wrong, and then the Lord's commitment to reward faithful behavior. He leaves them with some motivation at the end. And so, as we've been doing, we follow that general pattern. City. Well, the city was an industrial one, and Thyatira was world famous for its purple dye and purple cloth. It was a very lucrative industry. Uh, They made it from a plant, M-A-D-D-E-R, the matter root. And uh, it grew really specifically in that region. And they cultivated it, and it flourished there, and they processed it, and they made a good living from it. Now, when you say Thyatira and you say purple cloth, Bible students, it should ring a bell for you. That would be, and I'm looking at Lydia, it would be Lydia, Lydia in Acts chapter 16 from the second missionary journey. Now, where, what, what is she doing? She's the first European to become a Christian in Philippi. Acts chapter 16 tells you where she's really from. She's doing business in Europe. She's affluent. She's well-to-do. She's a seller of purple cloth, and guess where she's from? Thyatira. Now, the commentators say, oh, now we know how the church at Thyatira heard the gospel. Was it those long, detailed letters that she wrote home, and that anybody who is in an industry in Thyatira belonged to a guild or a union in our way of thinking? did she write letters to her friends and co-workers? Because she had a lot to tell. The gospel came to her. She was on the riverbank, and they were saying prayers, and they didn't know much about God, but their hearts were open, and bang, she's the first believer in Europe of all time in history. She writes home. Can you imagine the story? She just says, Paul the apostle came, and he was preaching, and the Lord opened my heart and I became a believer in this God and in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what's been happening around here. Well, there was this slave girl and she, and she was a fortune teller and she kept pestering the apostle Paul who shared the gospel with me. And then one day Paul just had enough and he turned around and he said, uh, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And the fortune teller lost her ability to tell the future. And her owner was very, very angry. And, dear Thyatirans, he stirred up a big crowd. They hauled Paul and Silas off and they flogged them and threw them into a jail. And Acts chapter 16 says that they were not, not just in the outer jail, but in the innermost maximum security cell with their feet fastened, chained in stocks. And then, at midnight, she's writing to her friends at midnight. This is what happened in my town, and everybody's a buzz at midnight. The doors of the prison flew open because the guys were singing hymns of praise to God, and their chains came off, and everybody was set free, and the jailer and his entire household became Christians like me and I' got to tell you about this. These letters or her visits home. Commentators say this was the seed that started this little church in Thyatira. Very interesting that it was a powerful and influential woman who helped found the church. And now we hear that it's a powerful and influential woman who has helped destroying the church. Jesus will give her the nickname Jezebel, the scariest and wicked woman, most wicked woman of the Old Testament. Testament. So the greeting. Well, the Lord's greeting, he comes out swinging, doesn't he? Why? Because you're going to hear, and as you have heard, that everybody's intimidated around this so called self named prophetess. And they're letting their church be destroyed by this crazy woman. And nobody has the guts to do anything about it. So the greeting is meant to evoke a little bit of courage and boldness. And and so we take a look at it now, the blazing indignation and the illusion, rather, to judgment. So first he says, hey, it's the Son of God writing, it's the Son of God. Now, this is a very rare moment when Jesus actually calls himself the Son of God. When he calls himself the Son of God, he is not calling himself the Son of God the way we call ourselves the Son of God in Jewish thought, when you called yourself a son of something, it was saying you were in equal nature with that thing. And so really it's a claim to be equal with God. As Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So when he says, "Oh, hello, friends at Thyatira, it's me, God, speaking to you, And I've got blazing eyes. I see something with my all-pervasive gaze, because I am God. I'm there. I'm Emmanuel. I see what's happening. I see past the facades, and I'm getting right to the heart of the matter, and I'm not very happy. Eyes blazing with indignation, and then the feet fired up like with white heat, glowing, uh, always a, a, a sign of judgment, bronze in the Bible and so he's saying really here's a paraphrase this my friends at Thyatira is from a letter is a letter rather from someone who's not afraid of Jezebel or the intimidation she wields within your congregation I am God Almighty I don't like some of what I'm seeing and I'm ready to take care of business that's the greeting now we're on to the commendation. What are they doing right? So the Lord is, is cool in this. He always starts with an uplifting uh, uh, note of what they're doing right. And there are several things that verse 19 says. First of all, he says, I'm well aware of your works, or really a good way to think of that is good deeds. You're doing good stuff. And you know what, folks? They're, it's born out of faith and love for the Lord, They're doing good deeds because they're already saved as a response of receiving freely the free gift of eternal life. They're not doing good works so that they can get to heaven. They're doing good works because they realize they've already been given heaven. And that's the proper way to think of that. So he says, hey, I'm there. I see you guys are giving in the offering. It's a small church. It's a small town, but even a cup of cold water to encourage one of my disciples, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, I notice the small things. I see your little church. I see your little offering. I see your little food pantry. I see your little words of encouragement here and there. I see your good deeds. Thank you. And then he says... um, They weren't dead works, as James talks about, just doing good deeds without love and faith. But he says, I see your, get this, agape. I see your agape. So this is a church that has God's love, agape, going on. They love the Lord, and they love his people. And he says, I see your love and faith. I see your faith. And love and faith, friends, will always produce the next couplet that you see in your text. Service and perseverance. I love what uh, one writer said, actually, it was Ray Stedman. Love leads to service, and faith always to patience or perseverance. If you love God, you'll serve His people. You can't help it. You just want to be helpful to His cause. It is a sign that you love, that you're willing to serve. And if you have faith, you will persevere. Because you understand by trusting God, God is in control and he works all things out according to his purpose. So you keep at your work and you do not quit. So he says, I see your good works. I see that they're born out of this love for me and love for each other. You're trusting me. You have this servant's heart and you're hanging in there. That's a beautiful thing. And then he says in the last phrase, he says, and i see that you've come a long way you know god doesn't despise the day of small beginnings because they just started out he said hey you know maybe lydia came and said hey let's have a potluck and 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 i'll read a psalm and we'll invite the neighbors and that's how it started something like that and jesus says hey wow you guys you started with a few little people and a couple chairs from costco and and look <laughs> I didn't slip that by you, huh? (laughs) That's how we started. We started with no money, not one dollar, no help from any other church. I didn't have a job. And we went to Costco and got 40 chairs. There were no employees, there was nothing. We rented a place, put the 40 chairs out, and it started. Now we have 13 employees. We rent and lease 17,000 square feet. Perhaps he's saying, hey, Church at the Rock, wow, I know you're doing a lot more than when you started. You've come a long way is what he's saying to them. And I see that. And he's saying thank you. Now, great job, way to go. But oh, there's the nevertheless, there's the word. Nevertheless, he says, there's a cancer, sadly to say, that you've allowed to come in, spread, and attach, and grow, and metastasize, thanks to you. I've got a problem with that. Now, we all know. I mean, I mean, it seems incredible. I mean, with good deeds, love, faith, service, perseverance, and wow, you've come a long way that you can have something that could ruin the whole thing. But you can I mean, we get that. One small part that's bad can cause a lot of damage to the whole. That's good. Right. A tumor in an otherwise healthy body is a real drug. Um, a dead fly in a big, luscious, steamy, creamy bowl of linguine (laughs) is such a tragedy. (laughs) It's pretty much, once you see that dead fly, it's over. (laughs) It's over. A bully on an otherwise happy, bustling playground and one crazed church lady in an otherwise healthy congregation one mouth one diotrephes, one elder stands up and wants to take power one person two people at philippi syntyche and euodia chapter four paul the apostle i beg you two christian ladies who have served with me in the gospel could you guys get your acts together and stop bickering How would you like to be Uodia or Sintike today? They're both alive and well. When you meet them, you're going to be, oh, hi. And they're going to be, yeah, I'm Uodia. And you're going to be, oh. (laughs) The one called out in the eternal word of God. Just two ladies in a big church at Philippi. Just one deacon that John had to call out. And now just one crazy lady ruining everything. And the leaders who are letting it happen. No moral backbone. So time for correction. If you're taking notes, that should be around number three. Uh, Time for correction, verses 20 to 23. In his correction, the Lord will tell them what he's upset about, what they need to do to fix it, and what he's going to do if they don't. All right? So let's look at that. He's upset about a couple things. Number one, the passive attitudes of the leaders about a heretical teacher in the church and the terrible influence she's having on members of the congregation. Here's a paraphrase to start it out. First, he says, you tolerate this crazy woman who calls herself a prophetess. You know what? I have a name for her too, Jezebel. You allow her a teaching platform and hand her the microphone. Well, you know, You get it, right? There's an intimidating woman saying and teaching all kinds of crazy things, and the leaders, for whatever reason, are letting it happen. I don't know. Who is she married to? The mayor? Did somebody check the giving records and find out that they're really wealthy and they give a lot of money? Is that why nobody can go near her? Well, what will her husband say? Do you know how many friends, do you know how many people love her? And did you hear the way she speaks? Who speaks like that? Oh, no, he can't say anything to her. Tolerance is a good thing when the word means being patient. Tolerant of a fussy child, tolerant with the new employee, tolerant of minor irritations. But tolerant of immorality or of spiritual ideas that will damn a person's soul is not a good kind of tolerance. Tolerance of immorality is immorality. To tolerate evil is evil. Now, I love what one writer said. We who live in the modern times did not invent the saying, live and let live. It's always been the nature of unbelieving men to do whatever's right in their own eyes And then to expect for everyone to tolerate their path they have chosen without objections of any kind, you must tolerate them. Well, the Lord says, you know what? I'm really angry because of your tolerance. That's the word he uses. And who are they tolerating? Well, the Lord nicknamed her. That's not a real name, most likely. He calls her that Jezebel, verse 20. Well, who is Jezebel? Just to give you a reminder, she's the poster child for evil of the Old Testament. It would be like saying Judas in the New Testament. Uh, First Kings chapter 16 through 19, if you want to read up on her wicked exploits. She's married to wicked King Ahab. So she's queen. Oh, uh, and, and by the way, 1st King says, and by the way, King Ahab was the most wicked king ever to reign in Israel, bar none. So his wife Jezebel and King Ahab are really a match made in hell. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know else how to put that. What was uh, Queen uh, uh delight? You know what it was? She loved and lived for Baal, or you call him Baal. She loved him. He was the god of money and sex. And she, back in the day, the real Jezebel, found a way to entice the Israelites to worship alongside Yahweh, Baal, and to uh, eat of the pagan holiday foods and offered to idols and do all kinds of detestable and immoral practices. You'll remember she had 800 prophets of Baal that she personally supported. She, she, She sustained them because they were her workers, you know? So how was this first century woman at Thyatira like this Old Testament queen? Well, verse 20, she's doing through her teaching what Jezebel did through her administration. This woman is misleading. And here's where the fire comes from, folks. It says she's leading my servants, my Christians. She's leading them into idolatry and sexual immorality. Now, that is the cause for the Lord to go a little ballistic That's a thing that really—that's a tender spot for God. It's one thing when an adult wants to ruin their own lives, but when you not only want to ruin your life, but a little young one or a person young in their faith, the Lord just the steam comes out of his ears. It's like, can you just perish on your own and not stick out your foot for everybody else to trip over into the deep dark abyss with you? He said in Matthew chapter ten. You know what? If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. This is Jezebel's doing. Let me give you a little feeling for it, all right? We have here among us several men from the Redwood Gospel Mission. They have lived quite the life. Their stories are unbelievable. They come, the Lord saves them, restores them, and through the program, they walk with, some of them, a mentor in our congregation for up to a year. They graduate from the program. We go. We're so proud of them. It would be like someone from this congregation, perhaps an elder, who takes the graduate out and through the scriptures, convinces him that there's no problem drinking wine or drinking beer. Show me, kid. Where does it say in the Bible that having a glass of wine is wrong? You know, yeah, but I've got a disease. You know, I can't really, I can't do that. Oh, come on. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anybody be in Christ, they're a new, read it for me yourself, read it for me yourself. They're a new creation. What does it say? What does it say? The old is gone. The new has come. So you're calling yourself an alcoholic. What does the Bible say that you are? You're not an alcoholic. You can have a glass of wine, the fruit of the spirit. Let me turn you to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The definition of Jezebel's teaching, Balaam's teaching from the last church and the teaching of the nicolaitans all have this in common justify sinful defilement with spiritual arguments and scripture to justify the sinning that's the emphasis that was coming against the church so he takes a drink he's a new creation he's no alcoholic he's no ex anything and where is he next Sunday? Under a bridge. And because of whom? Because of Mr. Deep Spiritual Thinker. I didn't want him to be bound with legalism. This is Jezebel. Jezebel can take you, uh, take the sting out of sexual immorality, out of pornography, over homosexuality, over living with your boyfriend or living with your girlfriend. If you have come down from your stance on anything I just mentioned as forbidden and defiling and sinful, then you've been enticed and you've been eating at Jezebel's table because that's her teaching. How ingenious is it that you can make a person sin by showing them in the scriptures where it's okay to do so? It's ingenious because, look, if I know I'm committing adultery and I agree this is wrong, the scriptures say it's wrong, my conscience is screaming at me, I'm under all this guilt and conviction, I can see clearly in the scriptures and my life that the two things don't go together. But if you convince me that what I'm doing is okay with God and I can give you a chapter and verse, it's going to be, who can help me? I'm a goner. What can you do to that person? Their conscience is being seared. They've redefined the scriptures. You can't use the word of God. The word of God has been neutralized. Why? Because of Jezebel. She showed you the deep things. Oh, come on. Open your mind. This is the 21st century, man. Come on. Don't you can't live together till you're married? Really? Serious? <laughs> Jezebel, watch out. He says, that's the spirit you want to avoid. Now on to what they needed to do. Verse 21, Jezebel had a grace period, like with everybody, God's merciful and patient, but he has a limit, right? Verse 21, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Now, like everybody, the Lord says, you know, he doesn't strike us dead when we stray, does he? He says, like everybody, I give you time, And here's the problem with Jezebel because, and like many backsliders or apostates or whatever she is, uh, they mistake God's uh, patience with indifference. His kindness and patience leading them to repentance. He's giving them time to repent. So either somebody has talked to her or the Holy Spirit has been speaking or he knows that she knows that she has some time. repent but she is unwilling so the mistake people think is hey I'm doing I'm out on the wire I'm taking a a, a walk on the wild side look at me I'm doing what all the Christians think is wrong (laughs) and no lightning months and months and months and years and even look at how blessed I am no car accidents you've got car accidents you've got speeding tickets you've got bills you can't pay look at me I'm paying my bills. I don't got car accidents. I haven't had struggles that you Christians have. Look at me. So how can you tell me that I'm doing something forbidden? And then, and then, the Bible says some people's sins are obvious and they're right in front of them. They're tripping over them. And others, their sins lag behind. But either way, he says, God will not be mocked. We will reap what we will sow. And if we sow to the flesh, the sinful nature, we will reap from that nature destruction. So he says, he, I've given her time. There's Repentance just means to do a U-turn. And and here's what her followers, verse 22, uh, and it is a graphic play on words with bed. Sorry, it's the Lord speaking, and I can't skip verses. So it says, I'm going to give her a bed. She loves the bed, but only it won't be a bed of pleasure. It will be a bed of sickness. And those who commit adultery and follow in her ways will have to intensely suffer. Uh so CS Lewis you know that often used quote God whispers to us in our pleasures he shouts to us in our pain you know you notice the again the mercy look unless they repent of her ways he's still talking repents what God would rather pardon than punish that's his heart he tells Jonah Jonah go tell those wicked ruthless good-for-nothing Ninevites. They got 40 days to stop what they're doing and get right with me or I'll overthrow the whole city. Well, Jonah said, I already know his heart. All they have to do is say, oh, I'm sorry, Lord, and turn from their wicked ways, and he won't carry it out. I I don't want to see that happen. So Jonah goes the other way because he knows how merciful our God could be. And at the end of that, when God, and he always does get his way, he got his way with Jonah, Jonah goes and says, 40 days, and this place is going to be on fire. Well, they saw a guy get spit up by from the ocean from a whale <laughs> and he comes out all bleached you know his hair's gone he's just whiter than a sheet and he comes out with seaweed wrapped around and he says you know 40 days and the sucker is gonna burn uh and you know what they repented <laughs> wouldn't you and he was ticked but God says to, to uh Jonah Jonah what's your problem Don't you know there are 100,000 people? I I don't take delight in the death of the wicked. As I live, says the Lord, I take no delight in the death of a wicked person, but I would rather that they turn from their sin and live. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Jonah and a lot of righteous Christians don't get the heart of God, but if they truly repent... If Jezebel would have said, what have I been doing and threw herself down, God would have relented, he said, unless they repent, meaning they have the option. John Phillips' prophecies of doom are usually uttered, are always uttered in hope that they might never have to be fulfilled. Now, the commentators are in agreement. The sickbed bed is most likely the result of disease and sicknesses that come to that kind of life of sexual immorality. God just uses that to say, here's the conclusion of the matter, and I paraphrase, the sickness and suffering of these who do these kinds of things will show everyone in all the churches and all the Christians in the region that I know what's going on in people's hearts and minds, and I've repaid each person. Accordingly, So he's saying, I'd rather that they repent, but if they don't, I'll use you as an object lesson so that others may connect the dots and avoid the foolishness that you're doing. He says, I don't want to do that, but I will take advantage of this so that people will look and say, gee whiz, everybody is sick and agonizing and some of them are dying who's been to Jezebel and who act like Jezebel. And so God will make a distinction and connect the dots, and everybody will say, whoa, that's probably not the right way to live. And today, you can look around at people's lives and see the consequences of doing things that you shouldn't do and learn. You can learn. So an encouraging word to the remnant of the Christians who have kept themselves from the crazy woman and her teaching, verse 24 and 25, I just love this last word. Uh, He says, keep up the good work, you guys who've resisted this crazy lady, and I'm not laying any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until you see me. Now, what he's saying is, he's saying, don't cave in. You know, he's saying, and I'm not adding anything else to you. I've checked you guys out. I told you about your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, your good deeds. That's it. You're doing your best. You're walking with me. Thank you. I'm not adding anything else. Just live your Christian life like you're living. Bingo. He says, but I do say, hey, hold on tight to your stance against idolatry and sexual immorality. Hold on. Don't let anybody take that from you. That's what he's talking about there now the last point number four the promised reward uh, it's just beautiful and it's a tad hard to believe because we're talking about things to come and it's such a privilege and honor that he lays on us that you will have kind of a difficult time I think receiving it as I have I mean I know it's true I believe every bit of it it's just it's a wow here we go Uh, Here's a paraphrase of 26 through 29. To you overcomers, you who do my will to the very end, I will grant you authority over the nations. I'll give you authority over the nations in the millennial kingdom. You will have authority over not just some people, but nations. All right? He says, as it says in Psalm 2, I will rule the nations with absolute power and absolute authority, and you will share in that authority and rule. And then he says, and remember, I'll also give you the morning star. Then we're going to talk about this. This is a fascinating perspective that is used time and again in the New Testament. And I want you to catch it because it's life-changing if you do. To those who need help to step up, and do some courageous confrontation to those who have to war against their own sinful temptations there at Thyatira and to stand up to something just so egregious. He reminds them of who they are and who they will be one day. Now, let me expand this. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 says that Christ's people will reign and rule with him, that we govern in the world to come we are his royal priests and princesses and princes and kings and queens this is what he says will happen he says that we will sit on thrones that's the hard part it's just i can't imagine that but it's in the scriptures he says i've been given this authority from god the father as god the son and i will give it to you and i want you to live like it today I want you to understand where you're destined, who you're going to be, that you are that knight in shining armor, that nations will bow at your word. Nations. Could you use a little of that gumption now to go into Thyatira congregation and deal with the big bad woman Jezebel? Do you think, considering? who you are in me and where your destiny lies, that you have enough boldness to go in and take care of business. He's saying, in essence, wait till you see who you are. You're going to look back on your life and say, I couldn't have been a little bit more bold. (laughs) I couldn't have been a little bit more wise. This is the same concept that the Spirit inspires the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. A bunch of Corinthians are are squabbling, and they decide, you know what? I'm going to sue you. You backed into my chariot, and I'm taking you to small claims court. (laughs) And they're doing it in front of the worldly pagan judges. And then they're, they're starting with open Bibles and prayer, and then coming out swinging and cussing at each other in court. And here's what he says, and this ties the whole thing together for me. He says, Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. Are you Christians who are suing each other? Do you not realize that we will judge the world? Let that sit upon you. The Bible says, we, in our glorified bodies, we sit on thrones and we help him judge the whole world. They will stand before you and me. Then he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3, Do you not know that we will judge angels, perhaps the fallen ones? They will stand. The demons will stand before a throne that you're sitting on and you'll give orders. Then Paul says, are you not to be competent in smaller matters? Do you see the reasoning? Look at who you are. Look at the honor and the privilege of who you're becoming. Look at your destiny. See who you are as God sees you and what you will be and the authority that you have. And so use the wisdom now. He says, we can't find somebody in your church with a, wh- who's competent to judge between two Christians and a parking lot problem considering that you're going to judge the world. That's what he's saying here. Stop living such a weak and pathetic life regarding sin in your own heart. And the gospel, preaching the gospel, you're so afraid to open your mouth, you're so afraid to tell yourself no. But I was telling a guy the other day, you know, he's having trouble uh, with a certain sin. And the guy's big and good looking and totally buffed. And I said, when is that buffness going to get inside your heart to the place where it really counts? All that time in the gym and all of that strength but a real man is somebody who can not click on the image. That's a man, not outwardly, how much you can best but bench, but how much you can tell yourself no. The devil comes around and says to a man like that, hey, look at that, you know you want to. And he cleans his neck and he looks, and I was telling the guy, what a wimp you are. A real man realizes the warrior Christ indwells me by the power of the Holy Spirit and Satan and all my rottenness can prompt me to do something, but there's a warrior, there's a noble woman in the woman who loves the Lord, and there's a noble dignitary of a man inside the man who names the name of the Lord. When are we going to connect the dots he's saying? That's what he's saying. Ruling with an iron of scepter. A scepter of iron, rather. He's saying, can I see a little bit of that now? Maybe just a little bit. Not in arrogance, and now you start, you know, chest-thumping and swinging, you know, but in humility to take care of business. The last thing he says, so intriguing. And he says, and by the way, I'll also give... That person, the morning star. Now, it sounds a little random of a comment, right? You get, I'm going to give you the morning star. Revelation chapter 22, who's the morning star? Jesus Christ. He's saying, and by the way, I'm going to give you myself, but here's the connection, why it's not a random comment. He says, let me tell you, all these followers of Jezebel and their deep secrets of Satan... Lucifer's name means bright star. So he's saying, he's contrasting what they're getting. They're getting the bright star. But he says, and just so you know, you'll be getting me, the morning star, a brighter, more clean, more enduring, more eternal, more noble, the king of the constellation star. That's who you're going to get. You're going to get me. You're going to be one with me, co-heirs with Christ. So he says, it's not just, oh, you're going to get all this massive authority, but, you know, don't envy them and their deep secrets and their deep knowledge and their spirituality. They're getting the star, yeah. That's a star you don't want to be linked with, my friend. Be linked with me, I'll give you myself. Closing illustration, just kind of a neat little story Uh, Speaking of getting everything when you get the morning star, a Roman politician who's back in the ancient times whose wealthy father died, and he left everything to a slave in the household instead of his son. The slave's name was Marcellus. Some of you know the story. Well, the will stipulated that that noble son could choose one thing from the father's estate and one thing only. Marcellus got the whole deal It says, well, tell my son in the will he can have one thing from the estate. So with lawyers gathered and the hearing in full tilt, they read him, go ahead, make your claim, you get one thing. And he looks around and he looks over at Marcellus and he says, I know what I want, I want Marcellus. Marcellus is the slave who inherits the whole thing. And he was within his legal rights and he was given the slave, Marcellus. Therefore, he was given everything. Jesus said, and by the way, I will give them the morning star. And when you've got the morning star who's Jesus Christ, God the Son, you've got the whole deal. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are floored with privilege and honor that we don't deserve. We who scarcely can say no to anything our flesh desires. We who scarcely can spend five minutes reading your scriptures. We who have a hard time even opening our mouth to share the gospel. You call us overcomers. You tell us we will sit on thrones and and reign in a kingdom with you. You tell us you will give us the morning star as our personal possession, Jesus Christ, God the Son. All we can say is, Father, help us walk worthy of such a calling and help us to remember who you're making us that we could have more confidence and boldness in the things that threaten us today. Let us remember who we are in you and who you are in us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.